We're not going to get every home connected without working with our electric utilities, leveraging that infrastructure that's there, whether it be poles, make ready work, whether it be fiber optic infrastructure. Uh, we're going to have to do all of these things at one time. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. The sudden shift to working and learning from home during the pandemic highlighted not only the value of electricity, but the importance of access to affordable, reliable broadband. Millions of Americans are living in a digital divide with limited or no access to reliable internet. Electric companies are well positioned to help address the challenge of broadband inequity and are working to identify opportunities to leverage their fiber investments to provide middle mile broadband infrastructure in partnership with telecommunications companies and last mile internet providers. This is a win for all stakeholders, particularly customers and communities in underserved and unserved areas. On this episode of Electric Perspectives, we are joined by Alan Bradshaw, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships for Dominion Energy, who will discuss Dominion Energy's projects and partnerships to expand broadband access to customers. Then, Mississippi Public Service Commission Commissioner Brandon Presley, who recently also served a term as president of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, or NARUC, joins Brad Viator, EEI's Vice President of External Affairs, to discuss broadband policy and national efforts to bridge the digital divide. Alan, thanks for joining us today. Hello, Brian. Thanks for having me. For people who aren't familiar, can you explain why broadband is so important in today's digital world? Yeah, Brian, I tell you, in terms of education, you know, we've seen how the pandemic has shined a spotlight on the need for broadband access as schools turn to remote learning to mitigate the impact of the coronavirus. But, but really, even before the coronavirus, a study found that 70% of teachers assign homework that requires an internet connection. So expanding access to internet promotes equity for students who are in competition for higher education and job opportunities. And then being able to work from home became a necessity during the pandemic. And now many companies are looking at ways to expand remote work in order to compete for the best job candidates. And opportunities for good jobs are are now tied to access to high-speed internet. 79% of Americans use online resources during the job search process and many organizations require online access just to apply for a job. And third, you know, of course, the pandemic increased opportunities to use telemedicine and telehealth services. So the need for broadband has really been highlighted in the last 20 months. And people may not think about electric companies when they think about using broadband. So can you talk a little bit about how Dominion Energy and really electric companies in general utilize broadband for just their daily operations? Absolutely. You know, from a utility operations perspective, we're in a really transformative time in the electric industry as renewables are being integrated onto the grid. And, And like most utilities now, Dominion Energy is working to modernize our electric grid, which includes the installation of fiber optic technologies at and between our distribution substations to support new smart infrastructure initiatives and device automation. 
And what would be the consequences of lacking reliable internet access? And I know you touched on a little bit about impacts to customers and communities, but it really sounds like it's a critical piece of your operations as well. It really is. And in terms of consequences, Brian, you know, this is an equity issue. There are clearly haves and have nots across our country. And I'll take Virginia as an example. You know, the Northern Virginia area in our service territory is home to the largest data center market in the world, meaning about two thirds to three fourths of all internet traffic goes through the Northern Virginia region. And even with that infrastructure, Virginia still has 300 to 400,000 residents who are unserved. Um, this, you know, the, the disparity in access and opportunity is obvious and it just needs to be closed. So it's my understanding that Dominion Energy Virginia has developed a program to help local internet service providers reach rural communities who lack broadband access, as outlined in some legislation earlier this year in the state. Can you talk about this program and the role Dominion Energy will play? Absolutely. You know, first and foremost, it, it's important to understand that Dominion Energy is not an internet service provider or an ISP. Our role is, is more of an enabler. Um, the passing of the Grid Transformation and Security Act in 2018 set in motion a, a huge initiative for us to begin modernizing the electric grid in Virginia. As I mentioned earlier, one of those initiatives includes the installation of fiber between and at distribution substations, which can also be used for interconnects and for the installation of intelligent devices on our circuits. It's this installation of fiber for grid purposes that positions Dominion Energy in a unique place to play a part in solving the gap in broadband coverage. So an early step for Dominion Energy was to develop a feasibility study. Uh, this was actually a requirement out of that Grid Transformation and Security Act. And the feasibility study was to address how we as the electric utility could assist and demonstrate how such an effort would be in the public interest. So we ultimately landed on a middle mile strategy, which allows Dominion to leverage the work that we are already performing on our grid. You know, it's, it's really often too expensive for ISPs to install fiber across the long distances to serve the small pockets of homes and businesses that exist in rural areas. Our middle mile approach really helps bridge that gap. We are able to lease our excess fiber strands that we're using for operational purposes to those ISPs who then can extend their own fiber to customers, which is referred to as the last mile. At the same time, the current administration in the state of Virginia has really done a terrific job of securing and dedicating funding for localities and internet service providers to close the broadband gap. The current Virginia Telecommunications Initiative has directed $750 million to the installation of broadband to unserved areas in the state. And then on the legislative front, a pilot for Virginia's rural broadband program was enacted by legislation in 2019 and then made permanent in 2021 with the General Assembly encouraging collaboration between electric utilities and co-ops, ISPs, and localities to provide internet service to unserved areas. Since 2019, we have received our first regulatory approval for a pilot program. And then subsequently, uh, we've entered into 
many additional partnerships across the state with counties and ISPs and co-ops. And these partnerships enable the process of actually going out and identifying the actual unserved customers and then scoping potential routes, working through the available funding mechanisms. And all of this obviously will inform our future regulatory filings. For Dominion Energy, our cost for these middle mile projects are captured through a rate adjustment clause and our net of any lease amounts we collect from the ISPs. So the list of partnerships continues to grow and, and probably the biggest issue we have, Brian, at this point uh, is prioritizing the projects for upcoming regulatory filings in, in a manner that ensures work is being done equitably across the state. So you just walked through this a little bit, but being a highly regulated industry, it sounds like there are a lot of legislative and regulatory steps that everyone has to work through before you get started. Yes. Once we secure these partnerships, uh, we have to file for regulatory approval for these projects. Um, the company submitted three pilot projects to our regulatory commission in October of 2020 and then in June of 2021. The commission approved the pilots and the, the projects include a 39 mile project in Surrey County in partnership with the local co-op there, Prince George Electric Co-op and their internet service provider, which was a sub subsidiary of the co-op and they're called Rural Band. And then a 31 mile project in Botetourt County, which is in the western part of our state, uh, in partnership with Bark Electric Co-op and then their Bark Connects internet service provider. And then lastly, a 351 mile project, which spans six counties on Virginia's Northern Neck in partnership with the Northern Neck Electric Co-op and an independent called All Points Broadband. Let me just tell a quick story. You know, after the completion of our first middle mile installation in Surrey County, one of our pilots, we were invited to a small celebration at the county's community center. Now that the county has access to broadband, they saw the need to set up a room in the community center to teach residents how to gain access to the internet and how to use smart devices. You know, think about that. And interestingly, you know, this community center is less than 10 miles from where I live, where I've always enjoyed access to broadband. You know, if you think about it, this is the very same model that the electric industry used 50 or 60 years ago uh, to introduce electric appliances to customers. So for me personally, this really reinforced the importance of this program and the need to close this tremendous gap across our state. As you've already laid out, Dominion Energy is engaged in partnerships with internet service providers and electric co-ops. So those are some great examples of working with the different stakeholders in your community. For other electric companies that are developing an understanding that they have a role to play here, what kind of advice do you have on cultivating those partnerships or really just getting started? There's certainly huge momentum right now in terms of closing the digital divide. And I will say that our rural broadband program is the one initiative that everyone seems to agree with. I mean, it is extremely popular and positive. There, there are very few naysayers to this, if any. For those states that haven't received funding from previous programs, uh, the recently passed infrastructure bill at the federal level will allocate money to states, uh, $100 million to each state to begin with, with much more available as, uh, as well as 
funding available to electric utilities like us to support middle mile installations. So I would just say this is happening. You know, uh, it's here. Many utilities are working towards transforming the grid, as I mentioned, modernizing the grid. So there are some natural synergies evolving that allow utilities to thread the needle between core business and, and these new opportunities. With the federal funding, uh, there are more ISPs who want to participate in these initiatives. So the time really is right to begin establishing these partnerships. So certainly, you know, I would recommend begin a, begin a discussion with state offices and legislators to determine interest. Um, and we've been mindful about being a willing partner, but not always in a lead role in developing these partnerships. Success is best driven by the state uh, and or the individual localities. In terms of co-ops, I mean, this opportunity to partner with them has been extremely positive. And I would encourage having a dialogue with them as well. Many of them are creating their own subsidiaries that are ISPs. And so these are great partnerships. And maybe even have this conversation before uh, any discussion with state officials. And I mentioned earlier that uh, we put together a feasibility study um, which ultimately led to a RFI to gauge interest from ISPs. And this really provided assurance that, that we could make this happen and that there was a high level of interest. Thank you, Alan, for joining us today and for all the work you're doing to help close the digital divide in Virginia. Again, thanks, Brian, for, for having me and uh, looking forward to maybe checking back in with you at some point. I'll now turn it over to you, Brad. Thank you, Brian. Um, you know, we just heard some great examples of how Dominion Energy is helping to deploy middle mile broadband to reach unserved and underserved communities in Virginia. But this whole discussion really started um, well before some of the successes we're, we're seeing in, in Virginia, West Virginia, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Vermont. Um, it really started at kind of the highest levels uh, at the National Association of Regulatory Engineers. And it started, Brandon, uh, Commissioner Presley, when you were President Presley. Um, and, you know, you were really putting the pedal to the metal here to start pushing electric companies to get engaged in this and to finally bridge the digital divide. But that, I think, started even before that with the program you were helping to develop in Mississippi. So can you tell us a little bit about that program um, that, that you were helping to develop in Mississippi to bring broadband to underserved communities? Yeah, well, first of all, thank y'all for letting me be with you, Brad. And it's always good to uh, to be on the podcast and, and to talk about this issue that is, you know, come forefront of some of us, EEI and, and uh, you, Brad, and others, we were talking about this long before the pandemic, and it got a little lonely at times discussing the need for broadband access. You know, going all the way back to 2017, 2018, I began looking at, in Mississippi, uh, first of all, I, I go around in whole town hall meetings. As you know, we're elected by the people uh, as commissioners in Mississippi, so I feel one of my biggest jobs is to go out and listen to the needs of, of my constituents in city halls and courthouses, community centers, fire departments, all around the 33 counties that I represent. And one issue continued to come up time and time and time again, and that was the frustration of rural families, uh, small town businesses that could not get access to reliable, affordable broadband service 
and it was hampering their lives. And this was before we had ever heard of the pandemic. Um, and so I began looking at what were some solutions that were out there. And we began first just 14 miles from the Mississippi uh, Alabama line over in Hamilton, Alabama, where Tom Bigby Electric Cooperative uh, was providing broadband service to their members uh, at a, an affordable rate and a, in a uh, construction schedule that quite frankly was faster than uh, anything I had seen. And we said, first and foremost, if they can do it in Alabama, you know, there's a natural competition between Mississippi and Alabama. It's not just football, it's anything else. And uh, we said, if they can do it in Alabama, why in the heck can, are we not doing the, using this same model in Mississippi? And we found that we had a 1942 law on the books that said that our rural electric cooperatives could only sell electricity and that was it. So we worked hard building support throughout, really from a grassroots level, throughout the counties in my district and cities and, and counties all across the state that passed resolutions. And I had 1,310 citizens in the northern part of Mississippi join a task force to lobby legislators to change the law to allow rural electric cooperatives to provide broadband. And uh, the first bill signed by Governor Phil Bryant in the 2019 session was the Mississippi Broadband Enabling Act, which allowed rural electric cooperatives to provide broadband. So let's fast forward to where we are today. Uh, right now, we have 17 of the 25 distribution co-ops that are out providing broadband today. I have several counties in my district where I represent that are completely done, meaning that if you have uh, power, uh, electricity of a meter from Prentice County Electric Power Association, you have access to fiber to the home broadband, where they provide the router to you. It's unlimited, all you want, all the time. 100 megabits upload, 100 megabits download, uh, fiber to the home for about 60 bucks a month. And that entire county can be checked off the map. We've got them covered and we've got other counties that are in the queue about to be done right now. So the revolution that we've seen in Mississippi has been using uh, the infrastructure that electric power associations and our investor-owned utilities have in place and putting that to work in an all-hands-on-deck approach. So the Broadband Mississippi Broadband Enabling Act 2019 was step one. Step two was the passage this year of Senate Bill 2798, which allowed our investor-owned utilities to lease excess capacity on their fiber optic networks to broadband providers to go to areas where the Public Service Commission determines uh, that the that the locations are unserved or underserved. So, you know, we're, we're again, taking an all-hands-on-deck approach. Anybody that, that's listening to this podcast that's involved in this conversation across America that thinks that we're going to bridge the digital divide without leveraging uh, the work and the infrastructure of our electric utilities uh, has got their head in the sand. We're not going to get every home connected without working with our electric utilities, leveraging that infrastructure that's there, whether it be poles, make ready work, whether it be fiber optic infrastructure. Uh, we're going to have to do all of these things at one time. And uh, I'm proud that we, we, we've got a, a very good start in Mississippi. And I'm always proud to work with EEI on these type of, on these type of issues. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for that, Brandon. I think that really um, sort of, paints the picture pretty well of, of what's going on out there. And frankly, it illustrates the leadership that we've seen in Mississippi. I think um, a lot of listeners may know this, but uh, the electric cooperatives have been pushing this rock uh, for quite some time. 
uh, because practically speaking, they're serving some of the most rural communities in this country. And there's nobody else who's raising their hand and saying they want those customers and they want someone to commit to making that investment. And, 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 there, and there are many carriers that have had a decade to do it and haven't done it because it wasn't profitable. That's exactly right. And so, you know, I think you're, your, your concept on this was, was so right that, um, you know, once, once, uh, there was some telecommunication deregulation, the, uh, incentives to invest in those types of things changed for telecommunication companies. And I loved your discussion about the, uh, the act here in 2021, because on the, on the investor owned side, you know, our focus on the business, uh, here and kind of the opportunity here is really in that middle mile or long haul space. And a lot of electric companies have made significant investments into dark fiber uh, for the operational uh, sort of stability uh, of their system to ensure that uh, the entire, you know, uh, distribution transmission generation system can be in communication in the event of of storms or, or other issues. And one thing we found is that there's just excess capacity that exists in some of these dark fiber networks. And so therein lies the opportunity here um, for uh, that that middle mile infrastructure to be utilized by either a co-op or another ISP. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when we sort of kicked off this idea several years ago, and I've talked at some of your meetings about this, and, and I know you're familiar with sort of the first project like this that was put together. Entergy came to the commission four or five years ago and said, look, we need to build uh, a fiber optic network, obviously for grid modernization, uh, came to us with a price tag, kind of was giving us a briefing on here. Here's the concept. And, and I was uh, chair of the commission at the time and said, wait a minute. You, you know, are we going to be passing rural communities and small towns with this fiber? What about us taking this opportunity to build, make sure we build excess capacity in there and then give a chance for that lease off opportunity? Well, what happened from that was an energy ceasefire uh, project in which ceasefire sort of flipped the, uh, the script and said, look, we'll build the project if you will be an anchor tenant for us. And we worked that out in a way in which, uh, broadband service to 15 rural counties and 21 small towns in Mississippi. What I tell my colleagues as commissioners, we all know that the grid of the future is going to be a fiber-based grid. It's going to be a fiber-reliant grid. The cost to go in and put 200 strands of fiber in that, uh, in that tube compared to one is, is, is de minimis. It's, it's a rounding error. So pack that thing full of fiber, open up those opportunities. The cost is in the construction, which you're going to have to build anyway. The question is whether or not we're going to do it now or we're going to get caught behind the curve five, six years from now and need to build out this grid of the future faster and then uh, miss the opportunities for broadband. I use the word holistic a lot. And I think as regulators, we need to look at things in a holistic manner uh, many of the times. And when we're making these infrastructure investments, if the cost is going to be pretty much the same, whether you have excess capacity for, for the renting of that space or not, make the right long-term decision and build for the future. You're going to have to build it anyway for your grid modernization efforts. And we've seen Congress in this latest infrastructure bill uh, dealing with this in some funding sources. So I think we, you know, I think truthfully, our discussion and, and the things that we've worked together on the last few years have helped lead this national discussion. 
and uh, get some pots of money in this infrastructure bill, pushing for that grid of the future, and it's going to require fiber. I, look, I think you're absolutely right, and I want to I want to get into the infrastructure bill and talk about that a little bit. Before I do, um, I just can't help myself. Um, so, you know, you talk about the need for this investment in uh, in dark fiber to really future proof what we're going to need coming down the line. Uh, and even if, you know, we're only using, I don't know, 24 of the 144 strands of, of fiber that are running through that that, that wire there. Um, you know, if we get into some of these deals with a partner like Ceasefire or an electric cooperative partner, to me, it opens up some opportunity for, you know, lease payments that might come through there to actually be flowed back to customers or to be able to be utilized to start to figure out how to keep rates low in this period we're in. Well, and the other thing about it is, you know, I'm a, I believe in practicality and understanding the way, you know, that, that we have to get things done. You don't make omelets without breaking eggs. There are going to be costs associated with this. You and I know it. And, and unless, you know, uh, Santa Claus manifests himself, himself, there's going to be cost involved. But you're going, and I keep preaching this to, to you know, my fellow regulators, you're going to have this cost anyway. Now, we may can get some funds from the DOE and others because of the infrastructure bill, but these are going to be costs. You can, you can reap a benefit back to customers by those third-party lease uh, revenues. And in our bill, uh, Senate Bill 2798, Again, that we just passed this year in Mississippi, uh, we say that the commission shall attribute those revenues that are realized from these leases will go back to customers to keep rates low. So we're creating a revenue source where there wasn't one anyway. You're taking an asset that you're going to have to pay for that's going to end up in rate base. You know it. I know it. Consumer advocates know it. It's going to be there. So why on earth uh, be so... Um, uh, much of a uh, you know a simple simple mindedness that you don't use that to to create a revenue stream. We want to you know we've got to be able in the age of the Tesla and in the age of a modern economy we've got to be able to walk chew gum at the same time. You're going to spend on these investments. The question is whether or not you create a revenue stream and you uh, bring service to people who otherwise would not have it. That is in the public interest. If that's not in the public interest, I don't know what is. I, I don't know if I can say amen on the show, but I just did. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, look, talking about Santa Claus uh, over at the federal government and all the money that uh, they've sort of allocated uh, to a bunch of things in this infrastructure package. But the CARES Act before that had $100 million per state to invest in broadband infrastructure. And the Treasury allocated those funds, and then the states are sort of going to figure out how they're going to allocate it uh, from there. And some of those grant-making opportunities are beginning to open now. And so we spent a lot of time at EEI. Um, really communicating with our members and making sure they're talking to these state broadband czars or whichever office is going to get it uh, so that, you know, we can look to make more investments into this infrastructure to kind of offset some of the costs that that customers might face. But it's not just the CARES Act. It's also the infrastructure bill. and We've got a dedicated middle mile broadband program that's going to be run uh, out of the Department of Commerce, the Department of, uh, through NTIA, uh, the Department of Energy uh, is going to have some pretty substantial funds that are um, that are coming down the pike. 
to help close this divide. But the thing that I'm worried about a little bit, and this will be less of a problem uh, for you, Mississippi Commissioner, uh, is some of those laws that stand in the way. The law that y'all fixed back in 2019, uh, where you allowed uh, electric easements and rights of way to be utilized for telecommunication purposes so we could start to make some of these leases happen. There, there are probably seven states that have done that. I'm a little worried about those ones that hadn't, but the ones that have, I think this is just, uh, you know, the, the 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 application of some jet fuel on these programs that y'all are already running. So my question to you then is, what have the conversations been like in your jurisdiction and also with uh, your fellow commissioners about, uh, you know, how y'all are thinking about accessing uh, some of these funds to to really accelerate programs? Well, you know, as, as you know, it's a darn big bill, and, and we've had briefing after briefing. I was on a call with Nairuk and Nazio uh, just day before yesterday about this, uh, going through line by line and program by program. We want to make sure we're coordinating with our state energy office. That's in a separate agency from us. And so, you know, they're going – I think the thing that worries me the most is that you've got a DOE role, an NTIA role, an FCC role, a commerce role, a state commission role, and yep. you've got a lot of folks who've got to get in there and pull together. My my thoughts on this were is that uh, at the end of the day, all of these cases end up straight before the state commission, but you can't rate basis, you can't get approvals if the commission don't don't work on it. I hope that internally in Mississippi, we're going to try uh, to put together some steering type committees that look at are we scooping up every benefit and getting getting uh, access to funds as best we can as we go along this journey together and leave no stone unturned. And I think the state commissions, quite frankly, have to lead on that. Uh, we're working very closely, our commission is, with NTIA. We executed a mapping agreement, for instance, with them back in the spring of this year where we're submitting data. We sent out a letter yesterday to all the broadband providers in the state asking, please send us your GIS data that would tell us where in fact you're serving in the state. We won't, don't want to know about future build out plans because we know that gets pesky with trade secrets and confidential data. But we want to know where are you today? So we can give good data both in federal applications for grant funds. Again, the commission has to determine whether that dark fiber built by the electric, uh, by the investor owned utilities, whether or not it can be accessed. So we've got to check that box in our regulatory proceeding. And as we work with state legislators, so we've got a long way to go. Uh, you mentioned the rights of way issues. You know, we anticipated look, we anticipated that there would be an argument about uh, landowner rights. There's nobody bigger for that than Brandon Presley is. I supported the constitutional amendment that stopped the state government from being able to take private property for private purposes. And so I, I helped work on getting signatures for that. So there's nobody more on the side of private property owners than I am. So when we passed that bill in 19 and then we cleaned it up for the investor-owned utilities in 21 uh, in legislation, first person, first people we went to see was the Mississippi Farm Bureau, the largest voice of landowners and property rights activists in the state. They signed on to the bill and we found a way in which to work that out and avoid a fight in the legislature and actually get that done. Uh, no, the average Mississippian I talked to says, you know, I, they don't understand why in a world of broadband needs like we have that we would even be arguing about this. And so we work, we work through that. Uh, I think it's going to take that type of cooperation 
and clear-eyed leadership to really get these things done. You know, you, you mentioned the $100 million minimum for each state, which we refer to as Section 604 money, uh, the capital projects fund that was in the American Rescue Plan. Uh, governors have to make those applications by December the 27th. It's a one-page application, goes to NTIA. One of the things that I think is very uh, important for people to remember in that application of funds, and there's so many pots of money out there, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to keep all this straight. But in those particular funds, uh, it says that recipients, grant recipients should give preference, meaning the state should give preference to not-for-profits, cooperatives, government-owned networks, or those entities or situations where uh, the profit motive is not there. Well, I think that fits perfectly in our third-party leases of dark fiber because the there is no, you, you've got an asset already built. You've got an asset already being treated in rate base. There's not a need, there's not a profit need for the investor-owned utility there because they already have it. We should be looking at those in a different, with a different set of eyes uh, to, to go after the, the section 604 money or the, you know, the what you re reference is a minimum hundred million a state. That, uh, look, I think you're, I think you're on something there. I want to go back to something you mentioned a minute ago though. In that um, the conversation that the Mississippi Commission is having with NTIA about providing data sets for maps, I mean, one thing that has just been frustrating uh, is just kind of how bad the FCC maps are uh, and also what they consider to be broadband versus what people who live lives trying to be on video calls consider to be broadband. Exactly. Um, I wonder if there's a role for Nehruk and something like that, right? Like if you can go out and figure out how to share and help NTIA with mapping from the Mississippi Commission, if there's a way to replicate uh, some of that data, right? And just kind of sharing dark fiber maps uh, so that we could illustrate, you know, how close some of this infrastructure is uh, so we could actually go out and solve that problem. Curious to get your thoughts on that. Maybe that's an offline conversation, but it seems yeah, like you're on the bleeding edge there. Yeah, yeah, you know, no pun intended. A light bulb went off in my head as, as we were talking about this. There's not a component in the NTIA map to show where dark fiber is available, and maybe that is something in which we ought to start working with our. We'll we'll take the lead on that. Mississippi is working with our two investor-owned utilities and seeing what data they can share so that not only we show where services are available, we could show also with, with just a little bit of a nudge where we could light up uh, hundreds of miles of fiber in the state of Mississippi, if not thousands of miles of fiber that is already in place or is going to be built. So that's a good idea. And that's something we've got to work together on. The FCC maps are not worth the paper they're written on, yeah. bottom line. And they are, they are a complete, complete waste of time. Um, I don't know that you can fix something as broken as those maps are. Now, I understand the way Congress wrote the law, and, and we've got to move forward with that. You know, I serve on the federal state joint board on universal service. I'm one of four state commissioners appointed to that board by the FCC to look at how the $8 billion a year in universal service funds go out and the policies related to it. I think we've got to look at utilizing all of these type of resources as we look at universal service fund programs and funding going forward. But as you point out, also uh, mapping out and, and showing where these opportunities lie. Look, the, the bottom line is I'd like to have 10 broadband providers renting space from Mississippi Power or Energy. Love for them too. Let them all get in there and compete 
and pay those lease payments back to Entergy and Mississippi Power, and we flow all of that revenue back to customers. That that's uh, you know that's getting a dime out of a nickel, and that's what we want to do in these type of projects. And so I think that's a that's a good idea and a good suggestion. Yeah, look, I I uh, always appreciate your passion in this discussion because I, I know it comes from a place where you're really just trying to levelize opportunity uh, for your constituents, right? And like in COVID we've just seen how critical access to broadband is. I mean, it's the difference between people who can work from home and those who can't. And, um, you know, it's it's never been more important. So I, I love the passion that you take to this. And I love the sort of like thoughtful approach that you have and appreciating that these are investments that we're going to make anyways. Let's make them now. Uh, let's make them now and create opportunities for people and sort of, as you said, uh, let's get a, a dime out of a nickel. I don't know. I'm going to be bad at, at how I uh, express myself on that one, but I appreciate all your leadership and I look forward to be honest, to, to continuing to work and think through some of these problems with you. Cause uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in position to change the whole game here and uh, well, you're seeing it in Mississippi piece by piece. Well, you're kind to say that. Let me let me say this. You know, I represent some of the poorest counties in America. I'm headed right now to DeSoto County, Mississippi, one of the pop most, well, it is the most populated county in my district. And but I was just last week down in Tunica County and Quitman County in the Mississippi Delta. And and if we have any uh, idea in this country that we're going to help pull up uh, our rural people and get folks out of poverty and impoverished communities and communities that have historically uh, been underprivileged without a broadband connection, you know, we're, we're living in la-la land. The only way in which we're going to do that is give folks the adequate tools to participate in a modern economy. And, and we can't do that without broadband. Also, at the same token, as commissioners, regulators, our job is to guard the public interest, but it's also to advance it. You know, we're not just judges sitting up there waiting on utilities to file something before us and then uh, give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. We should be being proactive. This is one of those rare opportunities where regulators and the regulated industries that we work with can can sit uh, across the table and find projects that are not adversarial, but find projects that are holistically good for the people that we represent. And at the end of the day, that's what I that's what I'm elected to do. That's what I'm paid to do as a Mississippian. I'm darn tired of sitting around telling ain't it awful stories that. Our state is uh, ranked number one in this category that's bad and number 50th in this category that's good. One of the things that I feel like is our moonshot as Mississippians is fiber connection to every home. I think it's our moonshot. I think it's within our grasp. But the question is whether or not we're willing to, as regulators, elected officials, and as the regulated industries that we work with, we're willing to sit down, put our thinking caps on, be nimble, be quick, find ways in which to to uh, work out a compromise. And in this meeting today that I'm going to right now, Entergy is going to be at the table. Local co-ops that provide broadband are going to be at the table. I've got local county officials and legislators there. And we're trying to figure out how to uh, come up with a Heinz 57 approach to funding and getting fiber to the home in DeSoto County, which, again, is one of the most populated counties in the state but uh, has a severe broadband problem. So regulators have got to lead. You can't just be an umpire in this debate. You've got to lead. 
That is absolutely right. And I appreciate uh, your time, Commissioner. I appreciate your comments. And as I said earlier, I appreciate your passion on the topic. We need more leadership like yours uh, across these 50 states uh, so that we can go close this gap once for all. And I think you're right. Mississippi is going to lead the way, but I need 49 other states to copy. So let's go get it done so uh, I, I can I can share your model in other jurisdictions. Well, let me say this. This isn't just a Mississippi problem. This is an American problem. And so we've got to work across state lines. We've got to find, we've got to find ways to connect these networks across state lines and learn from one another. Look, these, this, that invisible wall between Mississippi and Alabama, if I hadn't been willing to uh, climb that invisible wall and see what they were doing, uh, we wouldn't have the program we've got here today. And we can learn from other states, and we're glad to provide any information to other states that would be helpful from us. This is an American issue. It's time that we have some strong American leadership on it, working across party lines, state lines, rural, urban, you name it. Let's, let's, let's get this done once and for all. I love it. Well, thank you, Commissioner Presley, for this time and conversation. And it just, you know, is something that you really started when you were president of uh, NARUC a few years ago. And it led to uh, EEI really taking uh, a pretty big leadership role in this topic. We created a CEO task force on broadband expansion uh, led by John Larson over at Alliant Energy. We've got about 30 companies that are engaged in this discussion uh, because I think you're right. Like we see this opportunity. We know as a regulated industry that, um, provide service to communities all across the country that we can have a productive role to play. And we look forward to figuring out how we expand that opportunity and frankly, create um, opportunity for customers all across the country. Well, you know, as well as I know, there are not many, there are not many issues in which regulators and utilities can get on the same side and figure out things together in a proactive way. So many times these filings are all reactive or uh, adversarial in nature. Not that anybody's, pissed off at each other it's just the fact that you it's just the way the world works this is one of those issues where state commissions should be sending signals of, of door opening not gatekeeping on this type of stuff and so yeah i'm glad to help any way i can right we appreciate that and that's our show for today thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.